Welcome to FinTech Brews and News, brought to you by Central Payments and Falls FinTech. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. Founders, co-founders, payments professionals, and, well, just people who love brews. This is a place to get a behind-the-scenes look at unique partnerships and ways to bridge the financial gap between banking, startups, and the entire fintech industry. Whether it's a beer or coffee or something else, there's certain to be a brew in every episode. After all, how do we function in this space without it? Each episode, you're sure to take away some good stuff going on in the financial technology space. So without further ado, let's grab a brew. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of FinTech Brews and News. I'm Nikki Rohde, and today we are kicking off a very special season of FinTech Brews and News called Women in Tech. And it's just going to be an awesome way of highlighting uh, women founders, women entrepreneurs, those who have gone before us and paved a lot of the way and pioneered through challenges and found success and different lessons learned along the way. So it's going to be a great, great series. And today we kick off with a good friend, an amazing person, uh, Catherine Petralia. She's the founder of Cabbage and has a wonderful journey uh, to talk about. So Catherine, would you give everybody a quick introduction? Yep. Hey, I'm Catherine. Um, as you said, I'm co-founder of Cabbage, a fintech that has served small businesses since 2009. And um, we sold a couple of years ago to American Express. And today's actually my first day since November of 2008, not working on Cabbage. Wow. Wow. What's that like? I don't know. It's kind of weird and cool. It's good. Yeah. I was prepared for it. It's good. It's good. Well, so for that many years, I'm sure you've talked about Cabbage over and over and over again. Maybe start with the idea of um, how Cabbage came to be. Uh, for those of you that don't know, which I would be hard pressed to think anybody in fintech doesn't know who or what Cabbage is, but talk about the genesis of the idea. I, I love this story because everybody thinks I'm going to say, oh, well, my co-founder Rob and I were running a small business and we couldn't get access to capital. And so we you know, started Cabbage, but it's nothing like that at all. Um, my co-founder Rob was working with this eBay API that was launched in 2007 and was the first third-party API that allowed third parties to get access to all kinds of data. In the case of eBay and PayPal, it was eBay seller and payment transaction data. And Rob thought, wouldn't that be really interesting data to use to make a business loan to a business selling on eBay? And he called me up because he knew I'd been in fintech for a while and, um, well, really since the 90s. And he um, he said, what do you think about this idea? And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and eBay at the time was a, a sort of a much bigger commerce platform, I think, relative to all of other e-commerce e at the time. So it just seemed like a really exciting opportunity to use technology to do something different, which is something I've pretty much been doing my whole career. So, um, so that's how we started. And we started with eBay businesses and we branched out to other e-commerce platforms um, and we you know, pioneered an automated small business line of credit. And over time, added more products and geographies and all kinds of things, um, all with the goal of helping small businesses get access to capital. I, I was never really passionate about small businesses before. Um, I just didn't think about it. That was one of the most amazing surprises about Cabbage was learning how important they are to the economy and how underserved they are. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was looking at some statistics just preparing for this series and small businesses alone, um, 
make up such an important part of of our economy here in the United States. And when you look at the the gender biases, males still predominantly are the founders of um, small small to medium sized businesses. Um, recently, it looks like um, as of 2021, 66% are males and 31% are female founders. And that trend, the cool part about that is year over year, um, though that continues to rise where women are becoming founders of small businesses. Um, what do you, what do you think attributes to that? Well, you know, I think it's just, I think so many things have changed. I think now there's just more equal access to all kinds of, um, all kinds of opportunities, whether it's starting a business or whether it's getting uh, one of those, you know, fancy jobs or whether it's being on a board or, you know, whatever it is, I think women just have more opportunities for, for a million reasons. Um, but one of the biggest challenges that businesses have always faced and the number one reason that businesses go out of business is access to capital. Sure. We were, um, we were really excited when we did this study like four or five years ago because we never collected demographic information. We didn't know who was a woman or who was a man or anybody's ethnicity or anything else. We sent our data off to a third party that did what they call a black box study that emulates what the CFPB does to determine disparate impact. And what we found was that we had twice as many women in minority-owned businesses in our customer population as exist in the general population. And I really think that technology is this, this great equalizing force that is democratizing access to all kinds of things. Because now, you know, a woman who runs a weave shop in downtown Atlanta doesn't feel awkward walking into her local Bank of America branch, not to pick on Bank of America, sitting across from some 60-year-old white guy where, you know, she's going to be anxious about right. what's this person going to think of me and are they going to judge me for something other than my business? And so we not only remove that bias um, by creating an anonymous way that somebody could apply, but we also just use data, just the data about the business to make a decision. And I think that's a better decision because humans are pretty much terrible at making decisions. We're very yeah. biased. <laughs> we are, whether we like to admit it or not, right? It's easy to say, oh, no, I'm not biased. No, we actually are. Um, psychologically, what you size somebody up in two and a half seconds, I think is the last um, number that I read, which is really sad. But so knowing that your demographics looked um, a lot underrepresented females, what did that tell you about the cabbage product and how did that shape your kind of roadmap from there? Well, what we learned really a long time before that is that most small businesses are really small, despite the fact that small businesses are responsible for half of our non-farm GDP and two thirds of all new jobs. That data has stayed pretty consistent for more than a decade. Um, most small businesses are really small. There are 32 million small businesses in the U.S. 26 million of them have no employees. They're sole props. And of the remaining 6 million, 90% of them have fewer than 20 employees and 80% have fewer than 10. So most businesses are really, really small and they're hard to serve. Traditional institutions just don't have the technology and the tools to serve them. And so what we learned was that, you know, you were going to, you were more likely to find diversity in those smaller businesses and you're more likely to be able to serve them if you could use technology to do it. Because this is really expensive to find those small businesses and to make decisions and to provide credit over an extended period of time. Yeah, that's right. So I'm curious, uh, something that's rattling around in my head a little bit is, do you have any, any results of those that uh, Cabbage has served if they those businesses stuck around longer? Is there more of a trend line that says they were more successful having access to quality capital that Cabbage provided? We did have that data. It kind of showed up more in the form of revenue. 
what we saw is that businesses who worked with us had you know significant revenue increases in the months following working with cabbage and the idea behind that is that you know business working capital should be a revenue generating asset it should be used to do things like grow the business whether it's hiring new employees whether it's expanding your physical presence whether it's buying inventory you know or preparing for you know a, a big job or big deal um, that you could land. All of these things are growing a business, investing in marketing. So um, so I think what we found is as long as businesses were using the funds for those things that were revenue generating, then they gave themselves a much better opportunity to stick around and to grow than if they didn't. I love the mm. construction example. That's probably my favorite example. Um, and we weren't, we didn't have like more than probably 12% of our customers in construction, but I think it resonates with people because if you're a construction company, you always get paid after the job is done and you have to buy all the materials up front. You have to pay your folks up front. And, um, and if you don't pay them up front, then you might not get them for the next job. And yeah. so that's really important because you want to have, you know, sort of the same stable of great, you know, technicians and um, great artisans on your, you know, on your team all the time. And so it, it's that they couldn't bid on bigger businesses. Construction companies have this problem because they have to have extra capital to do it. So it's really hard for them to grow unless they had access to some form of capital. And so many construction companies used our platform for just that to, to invest in a bigger job that would generate more revenue. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, I'm thinking about the pivot from or, or really the scale, right? From concept idea to let's do this, this should be interesting, takes off. And now fast forward, Cabbage was acquired by American Express. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? What are some lessons that you learned through that series of, well, almost two decades? It was, yes. Uh, it, and we started the company at a really great time, right in the middle of the global financial crisis. Let me tell you, raising money in 2009 for a uh, you know, company based in Atlanta, founded by some old people who hadn't had a big fancy exit before. Um, you know, that was rough to to make small business loans. But but anyway, we that was we spent a lot of time raising money because it's a capital intensive business. You know, you have to fund your loans with equity out of the gate because it's hard to get access to any sort of permanent capital facilities for that. So so that that was that was pretty rough. Um, early days, you just weren't sure, you know, what was what the next day was going to hold for you. But what was great is there were three of us who started the company. It was um, Rob at my Froine, and then myself, and then Mark Orland. He um, left in 2013 to start a company called Rody that recently sold to UPS. He is like a serial early stage entrepreneur guy. But um, what we found is that we really enjoyed working together, and that was what. I think made it possible to get through some of the rough times is we always, we always laughed. We always had fun, even when times were terrifying um, because we weren't sure, you know, where our next meal was coming from, so to speak. Um, you know, we, we were, we were always, we always enjoyed the work and we always enjoyed the people, you know, at the company. And I think something that we learned early on was to be really thoughtful about hiring, to be super precise mm -hmm. about hiring. Even we, we grew to 600 people um, we probably never needed to have 600 people. We probably could have operated that business with far fewer people than we wound up with. And even though we we probably, other folks might've grown that business to over a thousand people by that time, because we were still being careful. The biggest thing I've learned is making sure that you're just super surgical about who's doing what, who do they have on their team, um, making sure that everyone is contributing and producing, not just you know managing people. You got to be a big company before you hire people whose only job it is to manage people. Yeah, that's right. The 
lean a little bit more into that about the hiring, because I think that's always an interesting thing is some people say hire quickly, fire quickly. Some people have a philosophy of just grow and scale because that's what venture money wants. H- how did you guys as a, a co-founding team land on the philosophy that we will not compromise our hiring strategy? Well, because we screwed up early uh-huh. on. Mm. <laughs> so it's usually where it starts, right? It is. So in 2013, um, when you originate a portfolio of eBay businesses um, and you give them lines of credit and they use them, there's a good chance that they're not all going to pay you back. And so our portfolio didn't perform the way we expected. And we were creeping towards double digits um, delinquency rates, which was a lot. And um, so we're like, you know, our, our revenue forecast wasn't going to hit the way we expected. And we had too many people to, in order to support based on our forecasted revenue. So, so we cut about 15% of the staff. It was the saddest day. It would suck. It was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really the best thing. I have to tell you, the people who remained were really energized and excited about the work after that. And they were excited that there were fewer people because we had made the mistake of hiring people who were managers. And it's the hardest thing in a small company to start up and even as you scale up from there, is that people want career paths and that you hire different kinds of people early stage than you hire a little bit later and a little bit later and a little bit later. And Rob has said this before, when you, when you start, you hire generalists because you need a lot of people to do a lot of things. And then as you grow and scale, you wind up hiring a lot of specialists because the, the, te- the technical specific jobs become much bigger. And they become a full-time job. But if you're not careful, you don't bring in more generalists. And it's really hard to figure out how to do the next thing you want to do. You just kind of got bogged down in sort of the technical details. So I, the other thing that you have to think about when it comes to career growth is that I have to tell people all the time, your job is getting bigger every day. I realized that we hired you, you know, for this job and we had a hundred people um, and we had this many customers, but now we have, you know, 20 X that number of customers and 20 X that revenue, your job is bigger, even though your role is kind of the same. And so that's a really, it's hard messaging to, to hit right with folks so that they feel like they really are progressing in their careers. Um, I, I, it's, it's really a challenge. And the last thing I'll say on this, on this story is um, I, I love, we, have, we hired this amazing woman um, a few years before, a couple of years before we sold to American Express and she's still there. Her name's Crystal and don't hire her because I'll get in big trouble, but <laughs> she's super smart. And she made this comment, like, Cabbage is a great place to work if you've already learned how to work. She's like a fancy McKenzie consultant, like super smart woman. And um, she said, Cabbage is a great place to work if you've learned how to work somewhere else. If you haven't, it's a terrible place to work because things are moving too fast for anybody to train you. And I think it's true for all startups. Interesting. That's a really good thought. And I've never heard anybody put it like that before, but you're right. Lack of policy, lack of procedure, lack of direction. And it's really about getting your hands dirty and figuring it out. And some people just aren't cut out for that. Um, So so that's really interesting. I I, I just want to pick up on one last point, and that is, the great resignation, all this kind of movement of what's happening economically right now with employees. How do you see that? How do you see, especially startups being able to compete in this? I want what I want. I want it now. I want the best benefits. I want to work wherever I want to work. Kind of that movement where I've, I've referred to it as the tail wagging the dog a little bit. And there's goods and bads to both sides of, of those equations. But how, how do you think startups can capture good talent and keep good talent in that mindset? 
I think there's something universal. Um, we, yes, we all work for money. Everybody works for money. But I think what keeps people in a job, what attracts them to a job, is the opportunity to work on something interesting and compelling that is meaningful to the people who work there and to be able to work with people that they respect and admire. Mm -hmm. And so I think as long as those two things are always true and you're not just building another buy now, pay later product that, did I say that out loud? I did. I said you that did. Out loud. You did. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. That was a cuss word. No offense. No, I know. No. <laughs> That's a full letter word. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, as long as, you know, you're, you, as long as the work is interesting, people want to come do it. Um, so I think it's really important to highlight that and to remember that culture is created by the people who are there, um, not by the founders. Well, all the, you just need to step aside if you're the founder and make sure you're bringing people in that you want to work with and who want to work with each other. That's really important. Rob and I did panel interviews for the final for the final interview for almost everyone at Cabbage, even wow. up until I just did my last one like a week and a half ago. So um, it's really important to get to know people to make sure that they are going to be part a great part of the community, but you don't want to define what the community is. You know, the community does that. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. Um, thank you for sharing that because it kind of took an interesting turn. So I'm going to pull it back to a little bit more on the, the highlighting women entrepreneurs stuff for just a second and ask what specifically, I know you had two uh, male co-founders, was it two and then you, right? Okay. Yep. What what disadvantages of anything did you feel as as the female leg of that stool, so to speak? People ask me that question all the time. I have to tell you, I never felt that way. I, I, I think the reason is because I was sort of the subject matter expert. I've been in fintech for a really long time. I um, I really understood, you know, the payment platforms and the lending platforms and working with bank partners and all the regulatory compliance, um, you know, work that was going to have to happen. I think because I was that subject matter expert, it was easier for me. I think I felt you know, more comfortable in those shoes, maybe as a result. The only time I really observed a difference was when we were raising money. Um, you know, we, we, we raised most of our money either on the West Coast or from, you know, other countries, investors in other countries, because um, it's hard to raise money in Atlanta, Georgia, or at least it was then. But um, we had been, you know, on the West Coast for, you know, in the San Francisco area, for a couple of days, we had, you know, 10, 12 meetings. We'd probably had a total of 20 or 30 meetings, um, early days. And a woman walked into the room and she sat down at the table and I realized it was the first time I'd seen a woman in a room who wasn't bringing me water. And I asked her, I was like, are you like in the meeting? <laughs> and she said, yes. And I was like, oh my God, this is the first time. And I hadn't noticed the absence of women before, but I certainly noticed the presence of a woman. And, and I think you see this selection bias that exists. It's not, they're not being jerks. It's not like a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white men who are trying to keep other people out. It's just the bias that happens. It's, like I said earlier, humans are terrible at making decisions. We're full of biases. And so that's the same thing that happened there. But I mean, I had two dudes that I was working with. So it made it a yeah. lot easier. I wasn't just some woman walking in, you know, trying to raise money. I think that would have been a lot harder. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to the single founding woman entrepreneur that is in a room trying to raise capital, maybe struggles with the imposter syndrome or boy, I am an SME, but I don't maybe carry that confidence. What, what does that look like and what advice would you provide? Um, the first advice I would provide has nothing to do with gender. Get a co-founder. 
Like, I, I don't know how people do it by themselves. It just seems mm. so hard to me to not be able to share that load, to, to have to be confident that every decision that you're making is correct, to not have the benefit and the beauty of another point of view to bring to your business and to bring to decision-making. I think it's really, really, really important. Um, but that's a, that's like a, I guess a hobby horse of mine. Um, yeah. But outside of that, I, I think practice. You have to, you know, blow some pitches on some people you don't care about and see how it goes. React to the questions. Realize that as annoying as some of the questions people, you know, are that people ask you, the number of people, I mean, it's unbelievable. The number of people over the years who said, oh, does a small business really need $5,000? And we're like, oh my God, you, are you kidding me? You're asking me this question. We've deployed like $3 billion to small businesses. We're telling you that that's what they need. And you're literally asking me this question. Like, could you be more tone deaf? And right. so they ask them questions. They can't help it. They're not dumb. They just have, they can't know everything about everything. It reminds me of senators and politicians, you know, mm. they have to know everything about everything. It's that's why there's so many awesome. lobbyists because they're just one person. They can't know about healthcare and pharmaceutical and manufacturing and aviation and food. I mean, like that's a nope. lot. Nope. That's a really good call. Even when we launched false FinTech, the, when we had to create kind of our approach, our thesis and how we were going to attack the, the early stage market, one of the questions we had to ask ourselves is, will we take single founders? And that didn't even resonate with me straight out of the gate until we started to talk with other incubators and accelerators who said, we just, we just won't because it's not, it's not the best practice or the best recipe for success being a single founder. And so um, we chose to, on the Falls Fintech side, say, look, we'll, we'll let the market pitch to us. We'll see what's out there. And we did have a lot of single founders. And you're right, it's hard. And mental health, um, the strain on that. And um, especially if there's a family to be balanced, um, it's... Uh, I mean, that that load and doing that alone, I think you're exactly, exactly right. And balancing family, I think, is a similar challenge for both men and women. The only, and I, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to talk about that, but I'll bring it up. I mean, I think Go that is something it. that challenges women more only because, you know, we're more likely to take on more of that burden. The example I always use, my husband's been a, the at-home parent for 21 years. We have a 21-year-old son who's a, a rising senior in college, and we have a five-year-old who's a rising kindergartner. Yep. And, and they um, probably act a lot the same, don't they? That temper tantrums are about the same and they are. Um, and in fact, they are. I, I might, there's an argument that my five-year-old is more mature, but whatever, we'll, we'll see how that Different topic. He, luckily, Alex, my older one, is not listening to this podcast right now, so he doesn't know that I'm dissing him, you know, and across the country on the airwaves. But anyway, um, but my husband's been at home, so it was much easier for me. But without that support, without, with, you know, if we were both working, I think it would have been really, really hard. But I can tell you right now that if I had been at home and he had been doing what I was doing, he would not have called me when either of our children were infants and said, oh, how was the poop today? That was not, that was not a question that would have been asked, but that's a question I asked because that's I can't right. help it. You know, he wouldn't have been pumping at the office. I was, you know, that's just, right. it's, totally, it's, it's, it's natural, you know, it that is. we are maybe a little bit more engaged, especially when they're small and that makes it harder. It does. I think you're exactly right. We've got three uh, kiddos and have gone through the gamut of, of all of that balancing. And I didn't know that I would care as much about poop as I um, did when you have kids. It's weird. Um, so it, uh, <laughs> kind of, it's <laughs> perfect. I'm glad that yeah. I just said that. Um, so why, 
Why is it important that women continue to, I, I like the quote you said about when Rob said, wouldn't this be interesting when he first approached you to, with the idea of cabbage? If a, if a woman is listening and, and maybe doesn't have a co-founder at this point, doesn't have um, a, a ton of support, if, if it were, but said, wouldn't it be interesting if, and started to approach the idea of launching a company, why is it important that women continue to pull that trigger and drive that desire or um, level that playing field? I think we've learned as, you know, a society and, you know, as a community of businesses, both large and small, that diversity is really special and important. And it's important because in, in business, it's important that you have diversity at your board level, at your senior management level, at across the board in every part and throughout the stack of a, of a business and communities of businesses because it brings a different point of view. It serves more customers. It creates products that are more valuable to its own constituents who are all different genders and colors and ethnicities and all the things you might imagine. Um, companies that have diverse boards are more successful. They generate more revenue than companies that don't. Um, McKinsey did a study on this a couple years ago. So um, there's a lot of data that supports diversity, just the, the diversity of thought and experience. And gender is just one of those, but there are lots of other ways, you know, the diversity exists. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, one other thought is um, mostly about the idea of, um, of fear and overcoming any fear or lack of confidence. Again, gender aside, just specifically about founders in general. What's your take on how to break through? You know, you, you said you had some hard times during cabbage. Um, what, what kept you going and how do people overcome some of that fear? Well, fear is important. You know, fear is a trigger. It, 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 you know, makes your brain, your brain race. It makes your mind, you know, move through many more permutations because the adrenaline is pumping. I think it alerts you to danger, you know, that may be imminent. I think fear is really important. You can't, if you operate without fear, then I think you probably miss out um, on a lot of potential threats and opportunities. I think, you know, what helped us, and I think I mentioned this before, what helped us the most weather those storms was the fact that we had each other. We had, you know, folks that we really enjoyed working with that we wanted to keep working with. And, we, and I think that gave us a lot of um, energy to get through the hard times because we wanted to keep doing what we're doing. We really liked it. So um, fear is okay, fear is natural. Fear helps you make better decisions. I, I heard somebody once say, you know, mentors are an important part of, of the journey. But in addition to that, everybody needs an advocate. So you've got, and, and maybe it could be the same person, but generally speaking, we look for mentors to refine us and shape us and bust our chops when it's needed. But we also need advocates um, specifically there to encourage us and motivate us and keep us going. I think perhaps, and I'm a little biased in this naturally, but I think for women, especially we, we, the idea of having so many fundamental like tabs open in our brain and worried about everything from kids home stuff to um, running a business and anything in between. Um, it, it's hard, um, hard to do. I, I think ideally that is the beauty of co-founders is that's how it should work. They should be advocates and mentors for each other. That's how it should work. And when it's working well, when it's beautiful, that's what's happening. I mean, no one was a bigger advocate for me than Rob. 
Um, you know, and we learned a lot from each other about a lot of things. We will both say that, you know, the, our style and, and ultimately what others would call our success was the result of us constantly refining one another and, mm. you know, making ourselves better. There was no bigger feminist in our entire company than Rob. I can tell you that right now. I mean, it was great. And it was frankly because of him that I sort of accepted this idea that I, that needed to be part of what I spent my time on every day as well. Cause I never really viewed myself as, you know, an advocate for, um, you know, women's access to career and to, you know, opportunities. And, and I, and I've become much more of that because of Rob. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So you alluded at the beginning, um, that yesterday was your last day with cabbage. Um, now next dun, 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 the startup, uh, keep financial. Let's talk a smidge about what that is all about. What does the next chapter look like for you? Keep um, is an idea that Rob had. He has all the ideas. He's definitely the idea guy. I just, I like to help them, you know, grow, but he, he loves ideas. Um, it's funny when he called me in 2008 with this idea for cabbage, he actually called me with a different idea first. And I was like, have fun with that. It was a <laughs> terrible idea. Um, so anyway, not all the ideas are good, but, but, but a lot of them are. So keep, um, is especially relevant today. And we talked about this earlier in light of, you know, the war on talent and the great resignation, um, all of these things, you know, that we're experiencing in the workforce today. So what keep does is allow, um, employers to offer upfront vesting bonuses to um, attract and retain talent. There are all kinds of bonuses that we give, all kinds of variable compensation that occurs when we hire people. Signing bonuses, relocation bonuses, tuition reimbursement, um, you know, employee referral. There are tons and tons of bonuses. And when the employee leaves and they still owe some of the money back, somebody in HR has to be like, oh yeah, that, they owe us $10,000. Let me figure out how to get that back. Ring, ring, ring. Hey, can you send me the $10,000? Okay. Yeah. No. yeah checks mm. in the mail. So mm. it, it's really, it's a difficult process and it makes it, it makes this whole idea of, of a variable bonus that vests really challenging because you're not a platform that accommodates it. So I think of it as, is like Carta for variable compensation. And so that's, the, that's the platform. That's the plan sort of changing compensation um, making it better for employees as well as employers to 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 manage and grow compensation. So, if somebody were listening and wanted to find out more, get involved, um, how, how do they get a hold of you? You can find me at Catherine at keepfinancial.com. That's one way, or on sure. LinkedIn, or on our website, keepfinancial.com. Lots of ways Perfect. to do that. Perfect. Well, I am incredibly grateful. Uh, for the time that you spent and very encouraged for what's next for you. Um, most of our audience doesn't know the connection that you have with Trent, um, founder of Central Payments, and the wisdom and, and friendship that you've really given to and with him over the years. So thanks for everything that you've done. I wish you the best uh, with Keep Financial and all the other amazing things that you are involved in and will keep doing. Thank you so much, Nikki, and thanks for having me. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fintech Brews and News. Keep up with all the content and cool stuff happening at Falls Fintech and Central Payments by checking out our website, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our next episode. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.